It's the winter break, and while many faculty are busy with ongoing research commitments, January term courses, and all of that administrative work that got left on the agenda in the wake of the fall semester's maelstrom, hopefully at least some of us are settling in to enjoy some mind-numbing television on these cold winter nights. You know, I certainly have some favorites, among them the long-running British whodunit series Midsummer Murders. But I know some of my friends and colleagues have recently been enjoying some other prestige television centered on British culture and society. You know, there's Netflix's The Crown, Apple TV's Slow Horses, among BBC originals like Broadchurch and Poldark. But one show that caught a lot of people's attention in recent years was the BBC Studios show Peaky Blinders, the ultra-violent depiction of a Birmingham gang operating just after the end of World War I. You know, I've never seen the show, but I can understand its popularity. Because who doesn't like to revel in the anti-heroics of a heavily accented gang in a gritty period setting? Today I have the great pleasure to speak with a former student who's currently working on the subject of historical English gangs. But there's a twist. Unlike the depictions we might see on today's prestige streaming TV shows, my guest subject of study flips the script on conceptions of gender and class. Nikki Veets is a currently a master's student and teaching assistant at University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Her research at UMBC focuses on women's independent involvement in organized crime, in particular shoplifting gangs in London in the 19th and 20th centuries. Nikki has previously published research in the UMBC Review on the entrepreneurship of Lady Mary Wortley Montague and her smallpox inoculation in the 18th century. Prior to returning to school, Nikki completed her BA in History and Political Science from UMBC and worked as a legal assistant for the law firm Davis Wright Tremaine, LLP. You know, I'm really thrilled to bring you our recent conversation. Let's have a listen, Governor. I am delighted today to welcome to the podcast Nikki Vietz, uh, a master's student in history here at UMBC. Thanks for being here, Nikki. Thanks for having me. All right. So I want to jump right in because uh, you're doing a really fascinating research project. And obviously, this is a historical research. And what you're looking at is 19th century gangs in the UK, which is obviously something that's piqued my interest, something that, um, as I was talking to you off mic earlier, really kind of strikes me as something that's fodder for a, a movie script or for some prestige TV show. And, you know, when I think about these kind of prestige TV shows, you know, the Peaky Blinders or whatnot, you know, these, these shows that we've seen, um, we get an impression. Right of these kind of gangs from the 19th century, you know, tattooed, they're sly, they're armed to the teeth, they've got you know fabulous accents, <laughs> right? But you know, I was really thinking about this, and most of the time, we get this impression of these characters from movies, and they are pretty much always constructed in our mind's eye as men. But in your research, you've got a somewhat different story to tell, and so I wanted to ask you to start out: What are the gangs that you were researching like, and where did they come from, and what is their broader cultural significance? 
So I'm looking at one particular gang um, from the late 19th century to the 20th century. So the gang itself was called the 40 Elephants. Wow. And it was an all-female, all-working-class gang. All-female, all-working-class. Wow. Yes, kind of a... It's a tongue twister when you kind of like think about it. <laughs> and they operated, they were from South London. So they were from specifically the Elephant and Castle area of South ah. London. And they operated mostly in like the Oxford Street, the West End, the fancy department stores. And they were a shoplifting gang. Wow. And so they started roughly in 1870 and they lasted actually for almost oh, actually over a hundred years to 1992 a hundred years so this is not we're not just talking about the eight you know the 1800s this is a gang that's been in in existence for a hundred years wow tell me more tell me more it is crazy and so i <laughs> i'm personally my research cannot span for our masters all those hundred years sure <laughs> i am looking at give or take their first 50 years so 1870 to 1926 and so i'm looking at they're three of the key women that are in the gang and how from 1870 to 1926, how these women actually changed the methods and organization of the gang from the late Victorian into the Edwardian period. Wow. So how did this gang and presumably some of these individuals you're studying are pretty pivotal players in this, right? How did, how did this gang get started? Right? How did this come to be? So the Elephant and Castle area of South London in the Victorian period was literally the hotbed for all kinds of violence. Like everyone is like, oh, the East End, Jack the Ripper murders, mm -hmm. Whitechapel. But you had a bunch of crime in South London. You had a doctor, Dr. Cream, that actually injected rat poison into prostitutes. Wow. You had four prisons that were like right in that area. It was just a hotbed for criminality. It was referred to as the Mint the lowest of the lowest streets in London. And throughout the Victorian period, kind of ruffians, hooligans, they kind of emerged. And one unified group was called the Elephant and Castle Boys. I'll just refer mm -hmm. them as like the Elephant Boys because that's okay. a really long name. <laughs> sure. And they were, they were located at this tavern. And in this tavern, um, it was a crossroads between the bridges that connected South London to the city of London and they became receivers and distributors of all kinds of stolen goods. Hmm. And as the 19th century kind of progressed and more ruffian gangs emerged, they began to expand their business. They began to do pickpocketing, house burglaries, go into the racetracks. And they realized that we could actually gain access to the fancy West End bars and hotel scenes if we help to encourage our wives and our girlfriends and our sisters to join us. So oh. the 40 elephants who were originally called the 40 thieves after Alibaba and the Sorry. 40 thieves, uh -huh. they were like, well, if the men can do it and they want us to do it, why don't we do it? So they began this kind of co-operated scheme where they would dress up in more upper-class finery. The women would be kind of the decoys they go into the bar, attract a male, bring them out, and the elephant boys would then rob them. Wow. And as time progressed, the women realized and they learned the tricks of the trade. They learned 
you have to use fences and you can't wear the jewelry that you steal and you have to make sure everything is a close-knit family kind of community. You have to know everyone in the gang. They actually broke from the Elephant Boys and started their own criminal organization that was led by a woman and only included women. So how did the Elephant Boys feel about this? Were they were they upset about this uh, development or... Uh, well, they always actually had a close communication because they were family and it was kind of a way for them to be, well, we might not be getting the proceeds anymore from your spells, but if you need us or we need you, we're family, we can kind of interact. So it was kind of this breakage that was kind of like low key. It's cool. I get it. We'll like be like allies, you know, in a certain way. We'll help each other. And of course, a lot of the elephant boys dated the 40 elephants. So it was a little hard to be, you know, real enemies in that regard. Right. But still, you know, organizationally, these are distinct groups. These are independent operations. And you were mentioning that some of these key individuals, these women, um, were instrumental in changing the methods that these uh, the the forty uh, thieves or the right the, the the forty elephants right were able to use. Um, what what developments did these individuals bring um, that maybe they they were able to to conceive or co- you know concoct as a result of their particular experience, their particular gendered role in society? Yes, yeah, so I'll look at two of the big women. So mm-hmm. you have Mary Carr. She was, they called her leader the queen. So she was the very first queen. And she reigned during the, when they were called the 40 thieves. And so she grew up in the mint and she grew up also in a, like a convent. And she realized, I don't want to be a convent. I don't want to be a nun. So she went on the street. She became a flower seller. And she realized that as a flower seller, you don't make that much money. Some people might not even buy the flowers. You got to be out in the rain and the snow. It's not fun. So she started to pickpocket. And so she got involved in the pickpocketing scheme of the elephant boys. And so she realized, you know, you can go and you can just go in a crowd and pickpocket, but you could also make more money. So she developed this scheme, it was called the bus fare scheme. And it was her most common scheme where she would be a flower seller and, or just a random pedestrian on the street, one or the other, and her purse would get stolen. Mm. And she would be like, oh my God, my purse was stolen. What am I gonna do? And she would like be crying and try to run after the supposed thief. And it's on the West End and you have these gentlemen with their upper class attitudes and they'd be like, are you okay, ma'am? Do you need anything? And she'd go, my purse is stolen. How am I going to get home and whatnot? And he, if everything goes according to plan, he'd be like, well, I'll walk you to the bus and I'll give you some bus money and it'll be okay. And so using the damsel in distress, using the fact that I'm a woman, I can't hunt down somebody to their advantage, they would walk to the bus and at a designated pre-designated spot on an alley she would yell assault and she would have her fellow gang members go and be like he assaulted her you were touching her how could you do this and to avoid the stigma on himself he would be like what do you want and so they would take a watch or they would take his money they basically blackmail him wow so that was her favorite scheme 
Yeah, it's a, it's a total subversion, right, of these sort of you know gendered roles and norms, and using that to the advantage of the criminal conspiracy. Fascinating. Exactly, and so they would also transition it into the bars itself, and they would have a young member because they always worked in teams. They knew that if they worked alone, things could go wrong, but if they worked in teams, they always had someone to back them up. And so the one member would come, and she'd talk to a gentleman at the bar and she'd be talking to him and talking to him and she'd casually take his watch or something on him. And another member would pass by and she'd give that member the watch. That member would go and immediately fence it, get the money for the watch, come back to the bar and give that money to the young member that's sitting at the bar. She would then offer to buy a drink for the gentleman and he'd realize oh my God, my watch is gone. Where did it go? I must have been pickpocketed before I came here. And in fact, they already did it. And she's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. I didn't mean that. Like, like I don't know what happened. Someone must have taken it. And he was like, it'd be my, my grandfather's watch or it costs so much money. And she's like, well, maybe you'll find it. And then the next day they'd follow him, they'd track him. And the next day they'd meet up and be like, I found your watch. Now give me the money mm. that I cost to buy the watch back for you. And so it's all of this schemes to just get the money from all of these guys in the late 19th century. But things actually changed in the 20th century. And that was partly because they realized these, you know, blackmail schemes, these pickpocketing schemes, these street schemes aren't working quite as well anymore because more women were actually entering the streets and the streets were a bit more crowded. And so this, a new member, her name was Alice Diamond, she realized, why don't we use the changes in the urban landscape and target huge department stores? And was really mimic the attitude, the accents, the dress of these wealthy upper class women who could only afford Selfridges or Harrods or Gamgees on the West End. And we go in there and we work as a team, use some of the tactics from Mary Carr's reign mm-hmm. and steal furs and steal blouses and dresses and then go and fence those items. And so they completely changed from these blackmail pickpocketing schemes to organized shoplifting that involved teams of four or five women, hand signals. They actually targeted more than one store at a time. And they even started to include cars into some of their activities as well. These are incredibly sophisticated schemes, right? I mean, the description that you're providing, which, by the way, I love the the incredible detail that you're able to provide here in telling the story. Um, I mean, they they really had a, a really thoughtful approach to doing this stuff. And did they did they get caught? Were there ever instances where um, their methods failed? Oh, all the time. Like their oh. police <laughs> I mean, are insane. There was one member who was literally arrested like every single year. Oh, wow. And part of it, I think there was like the whole like under diamond, there was like a whole like outlaw hoisters code. Like you must have discipline. You must show up on time. You must come to the meetings. You, you know, you can't snitch on your fellow members, but they also under her, especially use a lot of these, like her decoy schemes was I, Alice Diamond, who she was like, five eight five nine when the average male at the time was like five seven so she was a really tall woman Mm -hmm. everyone knows me 
if I walk in, all the eyes are going to go to me. I've been arrested before since the age of 12. So I'm going to act, I'm going to come in, I'm going to act like I'm stealing something. And then I want the younger girls that no one knows to come in behind me Uh, and then I'm going to shoot a steal while all the attention is on me. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times Diamond or Maggie Hughes or the really big names that were constantly being seen by police, they actually took the brunt of the being arrested and the criminal procedures while some of the other members, not quite so much. Wow. That's, that's fascinating. And it speaks to not only the, the way that um, attention essentially is, is, um, you know, there's a gender dimension, right. To, to the way that attention is, is given and, and um, you know, the, the, the overall kind of scene that you're describing in these department stores or on the street. Um, but also that detail that you've just described where some of the biggest, you know, most prominent gang members are actually the ones that are taking the heat. And it's a little different <laughs> than the kind of conception that we might have about the way that a modern criminal organization might work, where those kinds of individuals are the most protected, perhaps, by the hierarchy of the organization from those kinds of uh, from those kinds of, of interventions. So really, I mean, just fascinating stuff. And I mean, you know, I think about this, this notion of crime and the fact that these women were collaborating together to do some, you know, pretty illegal stuff. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting that, you know, in our conversation, there's, there's this kind of valorization or at least this kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, wink, winking kind of, um, you know, a, a sly smile about the, the way that they were able to be effective in this way. Right. And of course we don't want to always valorize crime. Crime is usually not a very good thing for a society to have. But when we, when we look in media today, we see so many depictions and this is why, you know, we kind of begin with this idea of the Peaky Blinders who or whoever, right. These are these gangs, you know, everything from, you know, the, the, the gangs in, in New York and, um, you know, the, the criminal conspiracies in, um, you know, the Italian mafia, all that stuff, you know, we've got so many movies, got so much television that's, that's valorizing this stuff. Um, and I wonder about the sort of lasting cultural impact of the 40 elephants on, you know, English culture on culture in general. I mean, was there, was there a real awareness of this group at the time or what's the legacy essentially of, of this group in terms of both popular culture in England and and maybe even just um, gender roles in general? So it's, that's a very big question. So (laughs) they were very famous between like 1890 and 1926. Mm -hmm. There is so many newspaper articles about these women. And even within that 50 year time period, their perceptions changed. Mm. So when Mary Carr was leading, they were, you know, female drepidors, they were female scum, they Mm. were the criminals, the worst of the worst. Mm -hmm. And when Alice Diamond took over, and I think part of it is how clever she was as a leader, that she was willing to take the brunt of the fall, and that she really organized the group. Police, actually were saying they're the slickest thieves, the most cleverest shoplifters, the best English criminal organization in England. Wow. So it became from either scum of the scum to like, we have to like arrest them, but at the same time, we kind of respect them. Yeah, yeah. And then in 1926, there was a big event. It's called the Lambeth Riot. And it was a whole street scene with like bottles flying in houses breaking inside a house and their popularity in the media plummeted. 
And wow. part of the reason is because Alice Diamond, who was involved in this riot, went into prison and she went into prison for 21 months and she just wasn't anymore. The gang got rid of her from being queen and they changed their tactics yet again. So instead of doing organized shoplifting and evading the police, they did the infamous, we're going to drive our car into the window, we're going to grab the set from the window, and then we're going to drive off. The typical wow. Yeah, grab. smash and grab. Wow. So obviously very different reactions to something like this, which is a you know more violent, more aggressive kind of tactic. Right. And so they kind of just dwindled. And so from 1926 really to 1992, they were there, you heard about them, but they weren't quite as prominent. They just didn't fill the papers. The police didn't really write about them quite as much. And they literally dropped. They've dropped really from any public real memory. I did my research. Luckily, I was able to go to London, do research. And I was in South London and I was like, hey, I'm doing research on the 40 elephants. And it's amazing how many people said, I've never heard of them. Wow. There's a bar. There is a bar called the 40 Elephants. Fantastic drinks. Highly recommend <laughs> going to the Scotland Yard Hotel. Very expensive drinks, but very good drinks. And they want to increase their image. But their bartenders don't even know the real story. Hmm. They got the women mixed up. They got the methods mixed up. So it there just has just declined. Part of it might be because we think of the men, we think of the famous gangsters like the Sabinis and the Kimbers, or, you know, they just, their attention as the years went by Dwayne. So we're seeing a bit of more of an uptake in actually popular interpretations of them. And part of that is, I think, because of the Peaky Blinder show. Mm -hmm. And part of it is also because one of the relatives of one of the leaders of the Elephant Boys wrote a book the only book about these women, like in all stores, like the only ever thing ever written. And he kind of brought them back into the public imagination. So more people, I think, are kind of going on top and learning more about these women. But a lot of times it is more about, oh, look at how many times they're arrested or look at the few times that they did engage in violence. And they're not really tracing their change from in tactics and methods throughout the time. But if you look at the overall legacy, I think, of female gangs, especially shoplifting gangs, is we can still see it today mm -hmm. with the increased security in the stores, whether that is the actual armed security guards or the, the gates that you walk in and out or the little tags. I think all of the professional shoplifters that contributed and stole a lot of items in the beginning when all these retail stores became really, really big has we can see that throughout time more security has been added to prevent women or shoplifters like this from getting any of these kind of items yeah it's fascinating also to think about just the longevity of this gang and how to some extent our society also has changed and adapted in terms of gender relations in ways that make in the sort of later stages of the gang like this this overall um concept basically of an all all women gang doing this stuff um it makes it maybe less um remarkable in some way um whereas at the beginning right i mean this is we're talking about the victorian era where ladies roles were extraordinarily you know sp specific in terms of the things that they could or couldn't do um and this like subversion of those roles is such a shock right <laughs> i think probably to society that um you know after after world war ii and after the sort of fuller inclusion of women into 
public um, life, right? Maybe these these um, these 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 practices are maybe not as um, as jarring, perhaps to the to the society in general. But I mean, it's incredible that you're describing this this gang as as existing over those eras and adapting in some ways to the to the prevailing culture. I mean, really fascinating stuff. I mean, I think it's fascinating. I think it's cool how even like in the first fifty years, like in many ways they recreated their entire selves. I mean, they even got more members, like between yeah. like 1890 to like 1920. I mean, the members exploded. Like I've tracked myself between that first 50 years over like 70 members from police records, from the newspapers, just looking at who they're associated with, who was involved in some of this. And it's amazing how just massive, I mean, it is it, historically wise, the longest running English criminal organization ever. So it's just incredible how long these women were just able just to adapt and recreate themselves while all around them, like their male counterparts, like the elephant boys, they were gone. Mm -hmm. 1930s, just gone. So it was amazing how they were able just to recreate themselves while the men in many ways couldn't adapt. Mm -hmm. Wow. Fascinating. I mean, just, just to think about the developments that they are keeping ahead of in terms of social change is, is fascinating and all in service of getting the goods, right? <laughs> Very cool stuff. Um, so you mentioned you went to London. You mentioned that you've done some archival research. Tell us just briefly a little bit about some of the methods that you brought to bear to make this project succeed. Yeah, so the archival research was really, really fun. Um, it was really scary at first, like to go into some of these like big, like, archival institutions and be like, hey, I need a reader's card. Um, what do I need to do? So it was really scary at first. But once you get in there, it's really, really fascinating. And I think what really helped is seeing, you know, where Mr. McDonald, Brian McDonald started, you know, his research, like what did he use in his book? And then I looked at the newspapers, but luckily it was all online and see, okay, they were arrested here. They went to this court, they went to this criminal and they involved with this detective. And then from there, you know, with the help of course, Dr. Freud, she's been tremendous help um, seeing, okay, what archives in London have the criminal records, what has like the habitual like registers where I can get some of their mug shots. Can I get their arrest records? Can I get their prison records? So just kind of seeing from the newspaper articles where they were being, their trials were being held actually helped me determine which archive I go into and which archive I don't go into. So in total, I have the newspapers, habitual criminal records, mugshots, some court trials, and I have some of their prison transport records as well. What what I love about this is that it reminds me a little bit of, you know, a TV show where you're hunting down like a cold case, right? But you're not actually trying to prosecute anybody. You're trying to get to the bottom of the story of this gang and, and its origins and its its impact. So really fascinating. So when exactly were you in London? So I actually went in uh, this past summer. So I was there oh. in August. Fantastic. Fantastic. And I, I assume that that was supported by, uh, by research. Um, did you have a grant that supported that yeah. research? Yeah. Okay. So I had a had the grant from the graduate school from UBC, and I had a grant itself from the history department, which Fantastic. was able to help fund some of the research. Yeah, is, that's that's so cool. Yeah, having having grants like that available at the intramural level is so awesome because it allows for this uh, kind of research that otherwise would just simply be more or less impossible, <laughs> right? I mean, I was really lucky that also the. So I looked at the National Archive and then the London Metropolitan Archive. Those were the two main archives that I used. And I was lucky that 
to take photos. The one I didn't need any, I didn't pay anything. And the other one, it was like seven pounds. So it wasn't too much to take the photo versus to have them do it themselves. Like it was offered on their website. Oh, if you can't make it to us, we'll complete some of the research for you. And when you do the cost calculations is actually made more sense. It was more economically sound to actually go over there wow. than to have them send it to you because wow. of the whole transfer currency and the pages and the time it took. So I was really, really lucky. And I am very grateful to have, like, have the opportunity. Yeah. Well, and also as a scholar, I mean, I think that makes a, a huge impact on the ability to just be there and kind of sort of stand in the places where, where this happened and, and to get that uh, sort of taste, right, for the archive as well. Um, there's, a, there's a book by, I think it's Arlette Farge called Le Goût de l'Archive, or The Taste of the Archive. And um, it's, a, it's a really, I think, great um, sort of foray into the, just the feeling of being there and, and digging through this stuff and, and kind of tracing it. Yeah, smelling. Wow, the the all the senses engaged in in this historical process. So fascinating. Um, so Nikki, you know, before we let you go, we have a couple more questions. I, I just wanted to first of all just tell us a little bit about your trajectory. So obviously, this project is on its way to being a great success. Uh, what's next for you? So right now, I'm actually like honing in on finishing this thesis. I want to graduate next semester. I got one more chapter to write. So I am like determined, like blinders <laughs> on, ready to go. I'm thinking, thinking about trying to apply this to a PhD program because I am now so invested in these right. women that I want, it, I, I want to finish their story. Like I want to get to the very end. Um, so I'm actually considering, you know, in the next, application period to maybe throw my head on the ring and see what happens. Fantastic. And I'm sure that you're going to find success on the basis of the incredible work that you've already done. Um, so best best wishes. Good luck to you with that process. Uh, before we let you go, I have one question that I like to ask of pretty much everybody who comes on to the show. Um, and it's interesting because often I ask, you know, um, established, you know, professors at, at various stages of their careers about this question. But I think that maybe you have some insights that might be um, especially valuable in this regard. And that is to, to, to tell us a little bit, a bit about um, advice that you might have for students, uh, maybe at the undergraduate level who are looking at this, you know, hearing about your story and about the work that you're doing and thinking to themselves, I would love to also try to go pro in the social sciences. Do you have any words of advice for people who are maybe thinking about taking that next, next step, let's say to a master's program or to some, um, you know, post postgraduate uh, work in the social sciences? So I think I have two. My first thing is be able to take criticism because oh. you're going to get a lot of edits, a lot of, I don't know if this is going to work. Are you sure you want to do this? So I think to be able to take the criticism and internalize parts of it and then be like, well, I don't agree with that aspect. So I'm going to ignore that part. So I think being able to take that criticism, I think is a good thing. I think both if you want to go into master's or postdoc or you just want to go into a job. I mean, I was working in a law firm before I came back to school. So being able to, I think, handle both forms of criticism is going to help regardless. And the other thing, which I think is the simplest thing to do, but the hardest thing to follow is to find something that interests you. Because you're going to be stuck with a topic for like two to three years, maybe. And if you cannot keep an interest in your topic for two to three years, then you need to change it. Because you're going to be living and breathing your topic and you need to find something that interests you, even if it seems like a rabbit hole. Like I found the 40 elephants through a small little footnote and it has expounded. So just find something that really interests you and just go with it. As long as it's doable, go with it because it will help make it so much more enjoyable. 
Those are fantastic insights, I really have to say, and they resonate so much with me as well as somebody who's been doing this for a little while. Um, you can't cannot um, you know overstate the importance of that sort of spark, right? That that um, that deep interest that keeps you motivated, even when you know the 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 paper gets tall, <laughs> you know the stack of paper gets tall, and you're you're starting to to feel your head swim a little bit. Um, and I think that your other other point also speaks to the notion that having a great advisor really goes a long way in helping yeah. you. So, yeah, um, really yeah I'm really grateful uh, to Dr. Freud, Dr. Amy Freud uh, in the history department, who um, suggested that you come on and, and sort of forwarded me this uh, this uh, the information about this fantastic project. And it sounds from everything that I've heard that Dr. Freud is a fantastic um, advisor for this project. She is great. Shout out to Dr. Freud. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, this is the part of the podcast where we do plugs, right? <laughs> and so I think we're both here to to plug uh, Dr. Freud and all the great work that she's doing as well. Um, but Nikki Veets, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is a fantastic project. Best wishes going forward. I cannot wait uh, to see the finished product. And hopefully at some point uh, in the, the near or far-flung future after you've um, finished this PhD, maybe we'll see see the book or even the screenplay about this fantastic um, and interesting uh, subject in the future. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. And I appreciate all of your insights and your comments. It's been great. While most episodes conclude with a campus connection, the holiday break means that our intrepid production assistant, Alex, is enjoying some well-deserved time off. Alex will be back next time with yet another great segment. Until then, keep a close eye on your valuables and your assumptions about class and gender, and as always, keep questioning.